The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith, Certified Financial Planner with a Master's Degree in Financial Analysis. Sitting next to my counterpart, Ethan Baroga, who is also a Certified Financial Planner with a Master's Degree in Financial Planning. And together we are principals in Seattle-based wealth management firm, Empirical Wealth Management. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. Good to see you. Good to be here. This show is designed to share with you prudent techniques on how to preserve and increase and enhance your wealth experience, and uh, that we do that through sound financial planning and investment uh, investment concepts that uh, we we research and look for the empirical data on. We this show is designed for people who are are very serious about investing and understand the concept that it is a lifelong endeavor. And uh, and so you know we have open conversations here on this program, Ethan. That uh, we're not we're not a uh, an entertainment show by by any means. Although you are a reasonably funny guy, it's true. I've been told that before in a variety of ways. And um, and we're also trying to reach out and just talk with advisors out there. Our our one of our goals or missions is to improve the quality of investment advice that's given. And I think. There is a lot of confusion out in the investment world in terms of the levels of knowledge among investment professionals out there. I, mean, I think that has a lot to do with the different types of experiences that it, that in, individuals get, and sometimes the frustration is that uh, you know traditionally the financial advisors that I saw when I was in college doing internships, um, the best advisors weren't necessarily. The uh, most educated on capital markets or how investment theory works, but they were great sales individuals, and um, that's great. You know, uh, it, if it motivates you to to take some action and get things going, it's not so good if it's causing you to to have a very ineffective financial plan and or investment uh, program. Well, Ethan, I, I thought today there's an interesting article in. Uh, the Napa Advisor magazine. I got a copy of. It's actually your magazine that I that I grabbed. <laughs> I noticed that it disappeared from my desk. Somebody stuck it on my de- put it on my desk, and uh, I started perusing and reading. How fortuitous! And uh, yes, yeah, very fortuitous. Um, so there's an article here by a guy named Bill Benjamin. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And uh, he looks like he's been a longtime advisor. Looks like he's been around for a while. 
And uh, the the article he wrote is uh, investing is not paint by the number. And in here he questions, in his view, what what he refers to, I think, is more traditional um, theory about asset allocation. Just kind of trying to paraphrase that, huh? and I thought we could talk a little bit and just have a conversation. Really, we're on a journey here, right? That's what it says in the in the opener that you designed. There, we're on an investment journey. <laughs> or brace yourself, or <laughs> grab something, or get under a table. I don't know. I think it says something about seatbelts. Get your seatbelts because we're prepared for the journey. Well, right. I, I think we are on a journey, and and really, I think we want this to be a very thought provoking. It's not necessarily that we want to just ram our answers down our listeners' throat. We want you to think, and I know we don't spend a lot of time. Uh, I would call it doing the Susie Orman kind of stuff. Like, hey, geez, I, I don't know if I should if I should run up a thirty percent credit card debt to buy. You know, a color TV, and then and then you and I go back and forth with the person and talk about why that's a good or not good idea. Um, I'll leave her to do that kind of stuff. But I, th- I think what we're trying to do is is really take it a notch higher, if if I could say that, take a little liberty, or Jim Cramer style. You know, I was watching. I, I try to watch once every month or two just to tune in to see what he's up to. And uh, where he just makes ridiculous comments for the entire show <laughs> that that don't add up to anything. Like I really try to try to put myself in the perspective of somebody tuning in to get an idea of what's really going on in the stock market. He likes to talk about the market being in a bull market after it's gone up, talking about it being in a bear market after it goes down. Companies that are already gone up and then they be their goodbyes, and it's just kind of comical. So I think we'll leave that up to him. They've they've got those two niches filled pretty well, and and, and you're just groping around here in the dark yourself trying to find your niche, right? <laughs> before we do all that though, before we get into that discussion, uh, why don't you give out our information and, and okay. maybe tell us a little bit about your strengths and weaknesses? <laughs> <laughs> well, I might avoid that for today's discussion, but uh, okay. maybe just focus on the strengths. We'll, we'll try that. Um, if you're listening to the show today. Um, as usual, we would love to hear from you. Um, we can be reached here at the, the studio live if you have a question that you'd like to uh, have us answer on the air. The number is at 866-472-5790. And if you prefer, you can also contact us by, via email, which is uh, contact at empiradio.com. And, uh, you know, again, I'd be willing, again, once again, to offer up... Um, one of our favorite books if for, for a caller who happens to want to ask a question on the air. It's got to be a good question because uh, you said we got those autograph books. Oh, I'm not suggesting I'm going to give the autograph books out for oh, the question. Okay. If You're it's not right. a good question, I probably wouldn't do that. Okay. If it was a great question, though, I might be persuaded. If you call me up and you say, hey, I, I didn't make my mortgage payment last month, and uh, but I just opened a new credit card and it's got 30% interest and I'm thinking about buying a, a new flat screen TV, I'll probably hang up on you. And, to, and give you Susie Orman's phone number. I, I wonder, if Simon, would our, our screeners catch that? That wouldn't. That wouldn't. Yeah, getting through, a right? free book for that. Okay. <laughs> right. Yes. No. Okay. Seriously, though, if you are, uh, <laughs> if you do have a serious question, we'd love to respond with a serious answer. And so, uh, give us a call. Um, furthermore, if you're an individual investor out there looking for some some prudent investment advice, um, we would be happy to speak with you on a one-on-one basis as well. And uh, if you'd like to reach us here at the Global headquarters here in Seattle of Empirical. It's uh, 206-923-3474. 
and feel free to ask for Ken or Ethan, and we'd be happy to speak with you. Yeah, on that note with the advisors, I mean, what we are looking to do, we believe we, we have a unique approach to helping the clients. We're very passionate about what we do and being on the, the same side of the table as right. the clients we work with. And really it's about trying to get, not, not to be gimmicky or come up with a bunch of, you know, fluff stuff, but really just trying to get people to where they want to be and, and have them get to a point where there's peace of mind knowing that they're making the right decisions or the best decisions and they're getting that by advice with someone who a group of people who are who are reasonably educated about finance and um but also have the right incentives indeed know? so if that's just us here doing that um pro bono and, and trying to help help you because you need to do get a plan again. I, I I like to focus on bigger picture things like how do I make a lifetime of smart investment choices? How do I get on a retirement savings plan rather than the kind of one, you know, the teach a man to fish analogy there? That and I guess that's why I was prodding it at, at the, what I'm calling the Susie Orman scenario, where somebody calls in and it's usually one particular event and it really doesn't help them to get on a course of making smart decisions. Yeah, um, there's no framework that's been developed to answer future questions. It simply is a sort of a quick response to one one easy question. Uh, where really you're right. Uh, to make the most of what you have, you have to make a lifetime of smart decisions. And, and that really does take some time. It's not normally something that can be quickly answered on a show. But right. anyway, we're looking for investment professionals financial professionals that are very serious about building a career helping individuals around the country so wherever you're at um, give us a call if you are interested in, in talking about how we can support you in that objective yeah the number again real quick again to our, our headquarters here it's uh, 206-923-3474 alrighty okay well Ethan, you know, it's, I think this article, it's called Investing, uh, is not paint by the number by again, this, uh, Bill Benjamin. And, uh, I, I thought I could just kind of click through some of this and clearly it's going to take a few segments because we're, we've only got a few minutes here in the first segment. Uh, but I want to stimulate some discussion. And again, if you want to call in or pipe in, email us while we're talking about this with your ideas, we'd love to hear it. But, uh, uh as a part of that, this came out in December, so I think I got it right at the beginning of January here. Mm-hmm. And so as I kind of go through, it's, he makes some predictions that we could uh, maybe put into our vault uh, segment that we do, which is the the thing we do where people make comments or, or predictions about the market. We put it in and then later pull it out and see how accurate they were. And so far, it's not been very good for those making the predictions. Right. That we've been doing this for a couple of years now. But um, before we do that, I, I, I think it's worth showing that uh, the market has been doing some pretty interesting things. Um, and I want you to keep that in mind as I kind of click through this article. And and if we look at just year to date now, we're February, through February, uh, the end of yesterday's close as an example. And uh, you look at the top performing uh uh, asset class year to date, so just a month and eight days, right? Emerging markets value up 20 some percent. Emerging markets small cap up 17 plus percent. 
um, emerging markets in general up over 15 percent and uh, and and down the list now these were some of the asset classes in our last few shows Ethan that you've talked about where people were really worried particularly with what was going on in the in the whole eurozone and continues to uh, the news uh, plague the news headlines here um, but if we look at the previous year these are asset classes that got crushed that's exactly uh, right and uh, I think last year, down at the end of the year, some of these emerging markets were down more than 20%. Yep. Um, so it's interesting to see that because we've been talking a lot about getting thrown based on what recently happened. Yeah. And so keep that in mind, I guess, as we start to go. And we've got about a minute. Maybe I'll kind of start to preface this article and we'll come back. And, and, and I want you to comment all through. And again, this is a very uh, informal, unplanned discussion. That's how we do it here. And we're just really on a journey ourselves here. And so he says, hey, I'm convinced. He didn't say hey, but he says, I'm convinced that most of what I was originally taught about investing, the wisdom contained in textbooks and courses is wrong. Investing was presented to me as a process, almost mechanical in nature, whereby broad diversification buy and hold discipline and blind faith that stocks will always recover their losses would be a sound foundation for any investment environment. He goes on to talk about using correlation and a variety of academic terms like uh, optimization, efficient frontiers, and such. And he was convinced using those tools that he could create a portfolio that would endure all circumstances with only occasional minor, minor tweaking required then 2008 happened. That epic period led led me to, to completely reappraise my approach to investing. And over the last three years, I have engaged in an intense study of various topics, including macroeconomics, um, investing cycles, market timing, market bubbles, asset allocation, and so forth. I think we gotta, we're going to have to take a break, Ethan. I want to pause there. And so what we've got so far is, is Bill saying, again, it looks like the, I don't know exactly, but it sounds like he's been in this business. It looks like he's been in it for several decades. Right. Because um, he talks about his investment philosophy changing significantly from just a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And what's prompting this, right, is the 2008 situation. So one of the questions I have right off the bat is, if you've done a lot of studying about how markets work, um, it's interesting that that would start after the 2008 period. Where, but <laughs> we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that when we come back. Indeed. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. 
Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Hi, welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. Ethan and I are talking about uh, the article that appeared here in our NAPFA Advisor magazine by uh, written by an advisor named Bill Benjamin here. Investing is not paint by the number. And uh, Ethan, I only got a couple paragraphs in, and he was saying everything he had learned in traditional finance, financial theory. Um, he uh, After 2008 happened, he called into question and began to do intensive study on how investing really works, is my Again, paraphrasing. Um, that that epic period led him to completely reappraise his approach to investing. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna breeze through this real quick, Ethan, and we'll have some chit chat and then get back to it. That epic period led me to completely reappraise my approach to investing. Over the last three years, I've engaged in intensive study of various topics, including macroeconomics, investment cycles, market timing, market bubbles, asset allocation, and more. I have concluded that there were enormous gaps and misconceptions in my knowledge. As uh, per Will Rogers, it was not what I didn't know that hurt me. It was what I knew for sure that actually wasn't so. That wasn't actually so. I want to share with you some of the lessons I learned that I apply in my investing today. These are not recommendations, merely concepts I'd like you to consider. There are many, there are many routes to successful investing. And I am not going to argue that my approach is the only path. Suffice it to say, my entire approach to investing is vastly different today than it was the decade ago, when I thought I knew just about everything. Much of what I present here may be considered, considered 
heretical and even blasphemous with respect to receive received investment wisdom. If so, let those who criticize make the most of it. I don't care about being politically correct with my client portfolios. I care only about them, uh, money, their money. There's a little typo. And more importantly, not losing their money. Market cycles. The, perhaps the most important lesson I learned is that the stock market is subject to cycles. Secular cycles are often decades in length, and they are marked by a gradual change in the valuation of stocks from beginning to end. Consider graph one. There's a graph here, it shows, uh, which I've seen hundreds of times. It shows the periods of time the market was appreciating, going back into 1870, and then periods of time where it was declining. Now, that's what the market does tend to do, Ethan. It goes through periods where it appreciates and declines. And over an entire period, it, it actually has generated a positive return. Right. That's me speaking, not Bill here. Uh, consider graph one from the fabulous source. Okay. Since 1877, it's impossible to identify four secular bull markets in blue. They have each been followed by secular bear markets identified in red. And at the peak of the secular bull, the 10-year P.E. ratio has typically been between uh, 20 and 35. And that's using the um, Robert Schiller's approach. He uses a rolling average, by the way. At the bottom of the secular bear, the ratio has been in single digits between 5 and 9. Currently, we, pe- we appear to be in another secular bear market, and we don't know how long it will last. However, as stock valuations are still about twice as high as they were at the end of the last three secular bear markets, we can infer that the market still has a lot of work to do to bring mean reversion fully into play. In addition to secular markets, which can last for a better part of several decades, markets also experience cyclical bull and bear markets. These are more closely related to economic activity than to value adjustments. The cyclical bull that began in March 2009 saw the market stock market almost double in price. Likely, that cyclical bull is done. So here's where your vault item is, Ethan. Okay. Uh, likely that cyclical bull is done, and we are in, early, in the early stages of a cyclical bear market, perhaps associated with a recession that could see the market decline 30 to 40% or more from its peak. So cyclical, Ethan, is, you know, seculars tend to be 25 years, as I've read. They define it as secular, secular, where cyclical is shorter term. So I, I would, I'm assuming he's saying then, hey, we, we could see this in a very short period of time. Uh, for some reason, market cycles have been given the short shrift in modern portfolio in investment education. I'm sorry, I had to turn the page. In Asia, cycles are taken quite seriously. They now represent the overarching framework for my investment approach. So they are, these cycles are now the overarching framework for his approach. Unfortunately, for the clients that have worked with him for the last several decades, they they missed out, I guess, on, on that opportunity. But but going forward, based on on recent events, they will be in prime position to take advantage of that knowledge. So a couple of things. First of all, I guess um, he also says, I, I no longer view investments as rising in a linear fashion forever. That's just not consistent with history. A couple of things. Is it is it conventional um, theory? You know, and when we define that, we know what the academic research is, but we don't define the academic stuff that's come out necessarily as conventional. What I what I think we've 
viewed it as, is it tends to buck conventional wisdom, which is, if we define conventional wisdom, it's how professionals getting paid to manage money and, and maybe most individuals actually do manage their money. Right. Would, would you agree with that? I would agree I, with that. Okay. So the majority of the people investing in what you're saying are people who manage money. What, what approach do they take? That would be the conventional way to do it, right? Right. So when he talks, he goes on to talk about Mark, Harry Markowitz, um, who kind of had this idea of building a portfolio by putting in more than one investment right. and, and having some knowledge about what the expected returns are for the different investments and how they might interact with one another. That was, in a nutshell, kind of what he was working on, right? To right. Say that, that That's a different... At the time he came out with that, the first time he published the article, and it appeared in a in a uh, investment education perspective, would that have been conventional wisdom to you, or would you have said, well, no? No. Right. At the time that paper was written, or that he was uh, living in during that time, most folks, the conventional wisdom was to own individual stocks, like own as few stocks as possible, Right. <laughs> So why did we define it that way, though? Is that because why, – why did you define it? Because most people did invest yeah. in a few individual stocks, right, without right. consideration of how they interacted to one another right? Um, and how the expected returns of those would uh, – would, along with that interaction would affect the, the, the risk and return characteristics of the portfolio. So I guess I guess I'm a little confused by that I, because I everyone who writes an article I just want to make this point <laughs> they all say that they are going that they're heretics you know even Ed Larry said he's the antichrist of Wall Street or whatever <laughs> everyone says that they are the one that's bucking conventional that's right that's right have you met anyone that's or, or you know when we see advisors or other that says hey I am the conventional wisdom guy yep. everybody wants to be the maverick right. Yeah. That, hey, I've come up with this thing, and I'm I'm helping people in a whole new way or, or a different perspective that everyone else has missed out on. Um, sure. But really, the conventional because we have investors and clients that frequently talk about we, we get into things about um, doing something different, right? Whether it's following the herd, what who's following the herd? Well, the herd would tend to to me be defined by where the money is actually going. So if money is going out of the market in droves, and and we're saying, well, maybe it's not such a good idea to be selling at this point. Actually, if things are getting cheaper here, and considering maybe that you've got a twenty-plus year time horizon, for example, it gives you an opportunity to take advantage of the herd. Um, the herd is not the guys that are saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing that, right? The herd would be the people who are pulling money out in droves. It would be following the herd to do that at that time. Yeah, right. But yet, that's not necessarily. It seems that that a lot of times the discussions are that you're the herd guy because you don't want to pull out when everyone else is pulling out, right? Um, Or you're suggesting that we, by rebalancing or whatever method, we're buying into asset classes that haven't done so well, and that people are pulling money out, but somehow you're the herd guy. Somehow he's the guy bucking conventional wisdom when what he's described so far and goes on to describe is really the definition of active portfolio management. And what those guys have been trying to do for a 100 years. So there's nothing unconventional about recognizing that markets move in cycles, right? And the the graph, the very graph that he's quoting here, it's not like it just came out this year. 
We didn't know. Nobody <laughs> right. talked about secular bull bear markets. I, right. I, my entire career, that's been a part of of the discussion. And, and I, I think looking at these charts, and I, you know, obviously we've seen these things before, and it's very clean and easy to frame history like this once it's been once you've gone through it. I can, any, you can draw any chart you want, and you can easily pick out the peaks and the bottoms of it, and then, then surround any theory you want around why that happened. In hindsight, it's very easy to do. I'm not sure how it helps going forward necessarily, though. Well, and that's where I think as you start to look at these strategies where you say, hey, markets move in 25-year bull and then long-term bear markets and all that. It's Like you said, it's easy to identify those periods. What you're ignoring is all the little spurts and starts and fits that go in between, which he's referring to as cyclical. Um, and if you were actually trying to make adjustments, and, and the point I was going to make is we don't have to look, wait for him now that he's changed his investment philosophy. We don't have to wait 20 years for him to go, well, geez, how did that work out for you? You know, did it, did it work? Um, because we've got plenty of data on the professional managers who are doing and have the data that he's trying to use going back for a long, long period of time in the we, we, we've got it for 50 years already. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the data is clear that that these guys as a whole do not have not been able to add significant value trying to time markets. And, and in my view, a better approach, if you were learning anything from 2008, and I think this is where I feel like Advisors, where we as a group maybe miss the boat sometimes, is we we don't take a different path from the individuals. Is that we tend to look at what happened, like Larry said, and then take that and project it indefinitely into the future. Right. Um, well, we got to take a break. I, I had some other thoughts on that. We'll talk about it when we get back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network we spend 70 percent of our week in the office what is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it the number one motivator is a positive work environment and that's where real recognition radio comes in Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. 
Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. Uh, your co-host Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Um, before we begin or continue on with our, our segment today, I thought we'd give out our contact information once again. If you'd like to ask us a question about either the current topic, I guess that'd be appropriate, or uh, if you have something else in your mind as well, feel free to give us a call at eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero, or you can also reach us via email at empirical, or sorry, at contact at empiradio.com. And, uh, Ken, we were just before the break talking about an article by uh, Bill Bengen in the recent uh, NAPFA magazine and just talking about, uh, you know, how this person's view to investing has changed quite a bit based on what happened uh, in 2008, 2009. And, you know. And we're not not saying that that he's right or wrong, I guess. I'm scrutinizing it from the perspective as an advisor. What I... We've thought about this all through sure. the, the bear market and uh, that we've gone through. And is it something? I guess we're, we're like we said, we're, we're researching this from our own uh, inquisitive point of view. Where hey, any theory that you are, he talks about how important it is that his clients' money are at stake. Right? Um, I think it's very important for advisors and and for also the the ultimate beneficiaries, which are the clients. To really think through the ramifications of these, uh, you know, these drastic changes. So, we go through a market event. The first thing I would start with was, did we expect this to happen in a capital market system? And so, one of the flaws, as we were going on, I said, hey, some of the mistakes I see us as a group of investment advisors—not us per se, but all of us in the investment advisory business—can make. It, that is very similar to individuals, and why they needed should the reason why they should need us is to counter this behavior. Is something happens, and suddenly we're, I think a lot of advisors think, oh no, will my clients see value if I don't do something? Right. right. If, if, rather than go, wait a minute, maybe I didn't. In this case, maybe it's Bill. Maybe Bill didn't do a good job assessing risk with his clients, and so he had older clients that maybe were retired or close to retirement. And higher allocations to equity because maybe those advisors didn't have a good system uh, of determining, which I find, I, and I would agree with him to some sense, 
it's a little harder to to do that kind of work using just academic textbooks, right? Oh, for sure. It actually does take a personal side and a, and Absolutely a, and a good right. understanding of how people, you know, clients think what they need to do and accomplish and how they'll react through things. But um, it, you can't just really textbook that. But it, but if you think about it, I mean, the greatest thing that an advisor could have done, um, because the few who managed maybe to get their clients out earlier or, so, or sometime before the market began to decline and, and – uh, other than just pure luck, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't base a lifetime investing around a couple of lucky decisions. I'd recognize them as luck. But the real favor that could have been done, right, was to have the client in a in an investment mix that didn't overexpose them. So when we do go through long-term cycles or short-term cycles, you can take advantage of rebalancing, but you can also be sure that. Uh, I'm not overinvested in any one particular category, and uh, and if suddenly I'm I was all in stock, um, and I expected the notion that I own large companies and small and international to protect me in all markets and all kinds of down markets, you didn't do your education in advance, and I guess I haven't been shocked. Um, particularly when you go through the 2000, 2001, 2002 period. I'm surprised he didn't do this research back then. It was a little bit different market, right? You did have, at that point, a certain segment, large, growthy technology kind of stocks, and you had some areas that still did quite well that were growth asset classes. But it certainly was was worth examining down markets and, and maybe re- researching, and I know I certainly did, but I never thought that, that the silver bullet was owning, you know, a lot of different investment asset classes because when we had, uh, I think it was Ken French we had on, who's from Dartmouth University, he had said, hey, no, there. What appeared in 2008 was that systemic risk or what we call um, systematic risk right. that exists. You expect correlations because he talks. Ben in this article talks about how. In 2008, all the correlations went to one, so therefore the diversification didn't didn't help. But that's that will occur. It's happened before. It happened in the depression. Global stocks went down. Um, there wasn't as many publicly traded markets back then. But it certainly, if you look what happened, right, and you, and you know a little bit about your economic history, we saw that it wasn't. It's not that you would think. Well, we'll never have a period of time. And if you were a planner or an individual who thought, well, we'll never have a time period because I read in some book that you should own a variety of asset classes and that'll help protect you from loss. So I don't ever have to worry about a time where all stocks around the world are going to decline. The flaw was not that now we have to change everything, right, because this happened. The flaw should have been, why didn't I study that before? That's what, a lot, in my view, I think we're... If he was really researching things, it should have been, have I done the best job for my clients for the last 10, 20, 30 years? Right. And, you know, when you have a diversified portfolio, you know, that does prevent certain types of risk. Now, you're saying that, and I agree with you, that, boy, in 2008, when the market went down, all the markets went down. Everything was negative across the board. Some went down less than others, but all of them went down among the equity asset classes. So diversification from that perspective did not help you avoid a loss. You know, things went down in value all across the board. But what diversity did help you is if you are diversified, it, it helped you from going to zero. You know, if you had stocks, a couple of individual stocks named WAMU, Lehman Brothers, so forth and so on, those did go to zero. Diversification did help you in that that sense. 
Yeah. Uh, greatly, I think. So that's, I think maybe that gets confused a little bit when you're talking about diversification. Well, what, t- what does it protect against? And I think it really is a catastrophic type of risk. It is not the risk of it, so things going up and down in general. That's the way that it works. Well, little so with these, with these secular um, bear markets, then, Ethan, I mean, we did a study kind of on uh, showing on, re- on rebalancing, right? Uh-huh, right. The, the, the biggest surprise when we were looking at that data was, well, um, e- you see a lot of the, the, hey, if you missed the 10 best days, you would dramatically, um, over the last 40 years, you would have dramatically reduced your return. But right. if you missed the 10 worst days, you would have dramatically improved your return, right? And those days tend to come in between of these trends. They tend to come pretty randomly, right? And yes. So what we found was really – Outside of transaction costs and taxes and other things that would really want to would deter you from trading in and out, what you wind up with is you're pretty close to your your average equity exposure over a time period. So if you invested for right. over the last thirty years, but you're in the market for ten and out ten, right, um, and then in for the last ten, what you'd wind up getting in terms of stock returns on average, if you just did that randomly throughout history. Would be about the average um, return that stocks generated for the average period of time you were in. You didn't get overly penalized um, for doing that, and you didn't get overly rewarded. And if you did, because we were in some upward cycle or downward, again, it was random. But um, when he starts talking about buy and hold versus market timing, so he said, you, I don't know if you want me, to, I could read a little more of this, but uh, I'll try to do some summarizing. He says, I have also learned that traditional buy and hold investing is probably the best approach during secular bull markets. That's kind of a silly comment. So he's saying when markets are going up, buy and hold works great. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> markets makes are a lot going of down. sense, right? Uh, during secular bull, as during the 80s and 90s. However, it produces inferior results in a secular bear market. Graph 2 shows the S&P during 1966 through the 1982 secular bear market from Crestmont Research, one of the best sources of information on markets. This period consisted largely of sideways moving markets with alternating cyclical bull and bear markets. That pretty much describes how markets work, okay? Some of these cyclical fluctuations were quite substantial. The 73-74 market featured a 45% decline. In fact, the total return of the S&P uh, from 66 to 82 was exactly 0%, including dividends. Even worse, while the market index ended the period only about 10% below where it started, due to high inflation rates, investors' portfolios would have lost about 75% of their purchasing power. This experience is a strong argument against buy-and-hold strategies in a secular bear market. It argues instead for consideration of some form of market timing approach. Perhaps based on valuation, the objective of market timing in this instance is not to precisely tie market tops and bottoms, which he is convinced uh, can't be consistently achieved. Instead, it's to preserve client capital during a particularly hostile investment environment. So I have a few comments. Do you have any thoughts, though? Uh, you want to get on? Get well, I don't know. I mean, we're talking about, um, in this instance, just the S&P 500, right? That's, the, that's this graph. Mm-hmm. And so... This this is the, the diversified portfolio that he's talking about. I mean, we, you know, in our, our portfolios, we have asset classes from around the world, including the S&P, but that's only one of about 14. Right. So it's tough to say, hey, this is the market segment I analyze. There's 15 others I completely ignored, but I'm hanging my hat on this one. 
you know, I mean, how did, how did a globally diversified portfolio behave during this period of time is what I'd be interested in. Because um, valuations in any one asset class can get out of whack from time to time and can lead to, you know, if they're very high valuations, they can lead to future low returns. So being diversified, not just within the asset class, but among asset classes is also important in my, my view. I think something important to mention also that I, that if we were looking at implementing this kind of a strategy, um, one thing that I would ask as an analyst here would be, what are the likelihood that I can I can exploit this indefinitely into the future? Yeah, so that's a good question. Certain things we do to enhance the return of a particular equity uh, model of investing, right? But we do that because we think, hey, there's risks associated. So part of the reason why stocks present higher returns than other alternative investments is because there is volatility. There's uncertainty. Risk? As to, yeah, we call it risk. Right. right. If a system is created in which the risk can be sidestepped, equity shouldn't then theoretically generate a, a premium, right? It would right. reduce that. And what, what's traditionally happened is when there are schemes of Figuring out, at least academically, when, when you look at the way conventional asset managers trying to find ways of beating the market, they tend to look backwards, right, and say, well, what would have worked in the past? Right. And when they try to exploit that into the future, other people catch on to that, and it, it tends to make it very difficult to, to continue exploiting it, particularly when there's not a particular risk around it. We're, we got to take a quick break. I, I want to be more clear about that when we come back, though. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. We're talking about... On today's show, uh, something I think it's very important. Should you uh, should you change your investment approach based on what happened in 2008? If I had to sum it up, Ethan, that's what we're really talking about, aren't we? I think so. 
and should you should you change your investment approach based on any new um, what you would consider to be I guess a new market event? Um, you thought markets I guess shouldn't go down or at least not all of them at the same time, or you know we have some uh, emergence of a very large systemic type of a risk. Um, does it does it change your view on investing? And if we look back to the '90s when it was on the positive, because this happens at both ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. At that point, there was a lot of discussion about well, does the old idea of diversification work? <laughs> right. And, and so then, diversification was being called into question, not because uh, it didn't protect you. Nobody was arguing that. It's, it was just antiquated because. Um, it was a new paradigm of, of which companies were going to make money and how you value those companies and right. following basically the trend year after year where these high growth companies were generating phenomenal returns. I'm going to stay in things like small value companies or international companies. And so it, it seems to happen at each time we go through some kind of a market shift. Yeah, especially if it's extreme, right? Yeah. On the, in the '90s, it was extreme positive returns for the S and P and tech stocks and that sort of thing, high growth stocks. And uh, this most recent situation was the opposite; all stocks went down. So, so is there a filter or or some paradigm that you can say when do I make changes? Because certainly we've adapted and grown and expanded our view and, and tried to bring in that knowledge to to the advice that we give to our clients, starting with our and alongside with our own investments. But how do you, how do you, I mean, I, I think this is the, the very slippery slope, as it were, of, sure. of, of investing that, um, how do you start to kind of filter out, well, what, what is reasonable? Or did I just want to make some changes and then I kind of built a, an argument around that? Um, I mean, because you, you, you really, whether it's your advisor or, if you're doing it on your own, you'd really prefer to have the way that you approach investing, um, not based on, on a really objective view of the research that you get. You know, not just looking at, hey, this is kind of how I feel. I'm going to go, and that, that is a behavioral finance psychological trait we do. We tend to have, a, we're very opinionated creatures. We tend to have gut feelings, and thoughts, and biases based on our past experiences. And if we feel a certain way, we'll tend to really go out and find. And there's so much being written at any one time; it's very easy to go out and, and build an argument around that. Yes. And, and what we've always tried to do, I think, is to say, "Hey, we don't. We want to be as agnostic as possible when it comes to investing. We don't want to have any predetermined belief that some type of investing strategy is always better than another." There has to be a, a way of looking at these things and saying, hey, okay, so this appeared, but what are the and, – and furthermore, what happens in some kind of an academic sense of looking at things doesn't always work in a, in a real investment approach because of the reality of, of the hurdles that you have to go through to exploit these kinds of things. So uh, going into the break, though, Ethan, we were saying, hey, if, if, if there is something to cycles and there was a way of predicting it, which – it could be, you know, he's talking about the valuations, and I, I certainly see some value in saying, hey, when things are really cheap, it's typically because people are extremely pessimistic, right? Um, and so they've they've really 
have to be enticed um, to stay into the market. And the way they do that is just having a higher expected return because things have gotten really cheap. When things are, when people are very, very optimistic at the market, these market tops, um, it makes logical sense that those tops tend to be co- coincide with the peak in valuations. And at that point, people tend to feel that there's very little risk and that the earnings, because of that optimism, the economic growth and the earnings and things, they'll catch up to the valuation and then we'll continue on at the rate we have. Um, it just seems to me very tricky and very difficult going into the future and trying to make major shifts in your asset allocation and and know when I should be the buy and holder or, or the uh, s- selling all my stocks. Right. Um, it seems a better approach still to me, and I, and I'm trying to read his re- his thought process here with an open mind and look at the research presented. Would be to say. Well, the one thing that I do know is the longer the time horizon I have, regardless of of the of where I'm at in a particular cycle, the greater the chance historically be I, I was rewarded for for maintaining my position in equities or even adding through those periods of time. As most investors pre-retirement are adding to that retirement position, right. so they're not just buying at the very peak and then sitting there holding it for a 25-year secular bear market, right? Right. Many of us, including myself and you, are actually adding through these downturns. Right. So we continue to be buy. And what we buy at, the price that we bought our equity portfolio at, is not any one particular point in time. It's the average of the entire time period. Mm-hmm. So the return I get is not from the peak to the bottom back to the top again. It's right. It's the average price I paid throughout Right, the period of time I was adding to my investments, and we see that when we look at our own clients, we look at the dollar-weighted returns versus the time-weighted. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Oh, I had a point. You, you brought up something else. Uh, oh, okay, it's triggered in my mind something else that's but maybe worth talking. Synapses about. are popping like Just a fireworks show. Something like Ethan's that. head here. <laughs> well, you mentioned the, the the cycles that the market goes through, the the cyclical cycles that happen within the market. At any given point in time, the real issue, what I see, one of the issues I see with this, this strategy that this gentleman's talking about in, in, the, in the article here is you don't know with any precision where you are in that cycle at any given time. No, he doesn't really afford any kind of solution to that. It's either. no magic. I mean, or, you need, and you would need some to know exactly where you're at in that cycle. It's easy to say, hey, well, I can tell you, maybe we're, we're, we're in the beginning of it, maybe in the beginning of a cyclical bear, just based on the fact that the market just went down last quarter. But who knows if, what's going to happen next quarter? Or the next year, or the next. So where you are at any given time is not easy to understand. It's hard. You, you can't see the the forest through the trees because you're you're in the trees, in this type of thing. So I, I think it's a a bit, a bit misleading as to how easy it is to to figure that out. And therefore, how would you base investment decisions on? If you really don't know where you are. Well, in theory, I would love to believe that that an approach like this um, would work. Because sure. who, who who wouldn't want for their <laughs> want do, do you like to see the people we work with, including your family and friends? Because a lot of times those who right. we come to our clients are our friends. Do you want to see them go through difficult times and see their, the value of their savings go? No, nobody wants to do that. Of course not. Um, and the one thing I do know is that uh, that investing is a an incredibly difficult endeavor. It's lifelong. It's it takes an immense amount of discipline. It takes patience, like nothing else I've ever 
you know, been involved in. Um, and, you know, it's going through just one of, one of our clients' portfolio that's been with us for over 10 years now. And, you know, it, the, the actual, uh, time rate, rated return, he has a positive and the, and the, the dollar weighted return. It's not the best decade that we could have picked out of history. No. But it's only because he was patient and stuck with it when a lot of people weren't. Right. That, uh, that he wound up, he's on course. Yeah, I mean that, that leads me to reminds me of something I like to say about you didn't have to miss the downturns. Okay, you don't have to miss the downturns to get the good long term average. Yeah, nothing nothing in the history books say anything about that. Well, I'd like to pick up a little bit on this when we next week we're running out of time for this show, but okay, um, well, we seem to run out of time so fast. But I really would like to have a succinct overview of well, what does this mean for you? You know, I, I think a lot of this can be confusing, but sure, um, we we just want you to make smart smart decisions around the way you're changing your investments and who you're listening to. And so we really appreciate you tuning in. If you, again, if you do want to call us, we've got the last few seconds here throughout the week, you can reach us at the company, uh, at empirical at 1-800-923-4307. You can email me directly. It's ksmith at empiricalfs.com and empiricals, E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S. Dot com and uh, would love to get your feedback on anything. So thank you again, and we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 